morning. What's in a name? Undoubtedly, you recognize the line. It's from one of the most famous scenes in all English literature. It's late evening. Juliet is leaning on the railing of her balcony. She has a hand pressed over her cheek, musing over the wherefores of Romeo's name. She's not asking where he is. He's lurking in the bushes somewhere underneath, uh, unbeknownst to her, as it happens listening to her remote. Rather, she wants to know why he has that name. Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name. Or if thou wilt not, be but sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. Tis but thy name that is my enemy. You see, there's a feud going on between two families of Verona and Italy. Juliet is a Capulet, but Romeo is from the wrong sort of people. He's one of those awful Montagues. But she's in love, and she's willing to overlook all that. Who cares what his name is, after all? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Well, that's true enough, and it's a nice sentiment. But would our perception of a rose really be improved by calling it something else? Hello, florist shop? Yes, I'd like a dozen red stinky Rogers to give to my wife for her birthday. (laughs) By the way, that's really a type of Australian marigold. I didn't just make that name up. But perhaps Juliet's love for Romeo would be unaffected then by renaming him Aloysius Slopstein Pumpernickel. <laughs> but Aloysius and Juliet doesn't have the same zip. Apologies to any Aloysius that may be out there in the congregation today. Names do matter. Now, what does all of this have to do with Paul's letters to the Ephesians? Well, the passage of scripture with which we are concerned this morning has as its major theme the subject of grace which word is obviously dear to this congregation, for it is part of what we call ourselves. Some 20 years ago, a small group of Christians from the fellowship at Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Annapolis came together under the leadership of Dan Smith to form a new congregation to minister to the people living in the southern end of Anne Arundel County. Naturally, the matter of choosing a name for this new community came up for discussion, and one person suggested Southland, But as that is the name of the company that owns the 7-Eleven chain of convenience stores, that name was set aside. And other names were considered. But when it came to a vote, these Christians decided upon grace. For, as they said, it was by God's grace that they had come to believe in Christ in the first place. And it was in and with God's grace that this new congregation would grow and live and minister. So grace is very important to this congregation to the Christian church as a whole. On page 8 in the uh, sermon bulletin is the, uh, the passage that we'll be reading this morning from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. You can also found it, find it on... Um, excuse me. Page 828, not 1225. I don't know what pew Bible has 1225 in it, but uh, page 828 uh, in the other uh, pew Bibles. Read along with me. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. 
In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. You can also turn over to um, Acts, the 20th chapter. In this section, Paul records Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders. He's taking leave of them and his ministry in that region to return to Jerusalem, having decided to go there after the success that the preaching of the gospel met in Ephesus, as is recorded in Acts chapter 19. Well, let's take a quick look at uh, verses 17 through 24 of chapter 20. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus." And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Paul knows the Holy Spirit has told him that this will result in prison and hardships, and indeed Paul was opposed by the Jews when he returned to Jerusalem, and he was arrested there for preaching what he calls at the end of this passage the gospel of God's grace. What did he mean by that phrase? What is God's grace? That grace is the unmerited, unobligated favor of God expressed in his saving work. No one deserves salvation. God is under no obligation to save anyone. He would have been entirely just and righteous to have condemned every human being who ever lived. But the good news of the gospel is that he was chosen to save a people without number out of the abundance of his love. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Also in that same book of Romans, he says, The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then just beforehand, as he had been writing to the Ephesians, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. God's grace is received by faith, trust, or belief in the atoning death of Jesus Christ for sins and his glorious resurrection for the justification of the believer. As John tells us, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Moreover, God is even further gracious to his people in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. What Paul has previously in this letter called every spiritual blessing in Christ, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And we have spoken of this before. But allow me to observe very briefly that eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor mind conceived all the glorious things that God has prepared for his people. Jesus said that he would go to prepare special places for us, that we may dwell with him in fellowship together with the Father and the Holy Spirit for all eternity, heirs and joint heirs of the universe. The church has had a concept down through the years of something called the means of grace. And by this phrase, we intend the vessels or the conduits by or through which God specially blesses his people. Now, certainly God can do this directly. He can pour out his favor on his people, however he likes, whether he chooses to work through means or or without means. But it has been the experience of the church that God commonly does work through things and experiences to transmit his blessings. And we have all experienced the spiritual benefits of prayer, of corporate and private worship, of the fellowship of like-minded believers, of exercising our gifts in service to one another, of giving to those in need. And even the discipline of the church is a means of grace, imitating as it does the practice of God who disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Now, the church has always had a special regard for the sacraments, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, those ordinances that were instituted by Christ for the benefit of his people and that are observed out of obedience to his commandment. We perceive a special connection to God whenever these ordinances are celebrated. And in most accounts of the means of grace, the preaching of God's word has always held the highest place. For it seems that God works most powerfully through the right preaching and the right hearing of his word. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And to the Corinthians, Paul wrote, But we preach Christ crucified, his stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. James agrees. He, meaning God the Father, chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. And then Peter chimes in. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. And then Paul, again, reminding Timothy how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then not to be left out, the words of our Lord himself. It is written, man does not live on bread alone, 
but at every word that comes from the mouth of God. So hearing biblical preaching is a privileged participation in God's grace. It is a blessing for you to sit under sound preaching, but it is not just the hearers who benefit. It is also a gracious privilege to preach biblically, as Paul elaborates in this passage. The man who preaches biblically and faithfully enjoys an extraordinary blessing. In this passage, Paul addresses again what he talked about in chapter 2 as the mystery of Christ. Looking again at verses 2 through 6, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Paul calls this a mystery. Now, what is a mystery? Is it a whodunit, an Agatha Christie? To us, a mystery is a puzzle, something unknown that requires work to discover. A detective pieces together clues and solves a murder or a robbery. He finds out who did the crime. Well, that's not what Paul means here. To him, really, the mystery is more of a who gets it rather than a who done it. There is a certain similarity in the joy that accompanies finding out what is revealed, as anyone who avidly reads murder mysteries will testify. But here, mystery refers instead to something that was once hidden that has now been revealed. Paul describes the mystery of Christ as that which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. In other words, God has brought a recognition of a new revelation, new insight regarding his plan of salvation. And that new truth is exactly what Paul has been expounding in the second chapter of this epistle. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings the Gentiles together with Israel as heirs, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And this was radical news for the Jews who had been accustomed through their long history to regard themselves as the sole possessors of God's promises, to have an exclusive relationship with him. And yet the prophets had often hinted at a future in which the nations would be enfolded into the people of God. And Paul says here, that time has now come. And this too is all of grace. As it was said before, God is under no obligation to save anyone. That he chose Israel as his people in the first place was gracious, that he freely gave the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a land of their own, already cultivated and fruitful without their having to put a hand to the plow, a godly leadership with Moses and Aaron and Joshua, a superior moral code, and the material riches of their enemies was blessing in abundance and overflowing. And to top it all off, as Paul observes at the very beginning of the third chapter of the book of Romans, they were entrusted with the very words of God, the greatest honor and blessing of them all. And now God has revealed his intent to expand and spread this largesse abroad. Lo and behold, even the Gentiles, those formerly outside the camp, living in darkness, 
by the grace of God, may inherit the kingdom of God. That is the great grace that Paul is preaching. And in verses, in the rest of this passage, he also enlarges, expands upon the grace that he has specifically realized himself in the preaching of this gospel. The 12 verses from 2 to 13, by the way, are one great parenthesis or aside. You may have noticed that in the, um, in the printing that there's a, a break at the very end of verse 1. Paul had intended to go on to the rest of his message, as he will pick up in verse 14, but he puts that aside for a moment to remind the Ephesians of the greatness of the gospel and the grace that he has received to help to deliver it to them. A central point in this passage is his acute awareness that he had been the recipient of God's grace, to which there are four aspects. Paul was not the same man that he used to be, and the credit for that goes entirely to Christ. He was born Saul of the city of Tarsus in Asia Minor, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, and by education a Pharisee of the strictest observance. His misplaced, bigoted zeal for what he thought was the truth of God, exercised against damnable heresy, led him to the forefront of the persecution of the disciples of Jesus. He meant to stamp out with violence anyone who proclaimed this, in his mind, false Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. But he was terribly wrong. He was, in fact, opposed to God's truth and was persecuting God's Son. If any man deserved condemnation and death, then it was Saul. But God graciously took this man, who was at sore enmity with him, and made him a new creature in Christ, dramatically converting him on the road to Damascus, as you can read about several times, actually, in the book of Acts. Paul never forgot it. For the rest of his life, he considered himself less than the least of all God's people and the chief of sinners. He was acutely conscious of how abjectly incapable he was of meriting God's favor. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor, he confesses to Timothy, and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And yet, not only was he miraculously brought into the family of God, having once been God's enemy, though he thought, in fact, he was God's friend and champion, Paul was given the privilege of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, all of those who had also been excluded who were outside the camp. He was used as God's instrument to bring the message and the means of salvation to all those in Ephesus and many other places whom God intended to save. And if this were not enough, in verse 9, Paul received God's revelation, specifically the mystery of the extension of God's saving grace to the Gentiles, as we have just considered a moment ago. And then lastly, as he notes in verse 13, he was counted worthy, although he would have denied that he deserved it, to share in the sufferings of Christ. It was to him a grace. He speaks of of his being a prisoner of Christ Jesus, meaning that he had been imprisoned by the authorities for obeying Christ and serving him by preaching his gospel. The litany of his sufferings you may find in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The beatings and the stonings, the shipwrecks, the continual danger, the lack of sleep, the lack of food, and the lack of shelter. 
all of which he suffered gladly for the cause of Christ, for the privilege of participation in the work by which God was adding daily to the numbers of people being saved. Well, perhaps now we can appreciate a little better the joy and enthusiasm which suffuses not just the passage we have looked at this morning, but the entire letter to the Ephesians. Grace abounds to the believer, particularly in the right preaching and the right hearing of the Word of God. First of all, of course, is the gift of the Word itself, God's revelation of himself to his creatures, showing forth his incomparable character, telling the story of his redemptive plan and his active work in human history, culminating, as we have just been celebrating, in the coming to earth of Jesus, his being born and living and ministering among us, and then ultimately suffering and dying, bearing the guilt of our sins upon his sinless person, and then being raised for our justification. And then we are astounded that God would use sinners as the chief means of proclaiming and disseminating and explaining and teaching his word, taking it to the furthest ends of the world. Think on it. He could have enlisted a whole heavenly host of angels, spread them out everywhere, directly proclaiming his gospel. And in a few instances, that's what he has chosen to do. But for the most part, the vast majority of the most part, he has worked through faithful men and women who have obeyed the call to take this message out to the world, to their neighbors, to their townsmen, countrymen, to the rest of the world. The preacher, wholly undeserving in himself, is a junior partner with God in this mighty work. To be called to preach is a tremendous and sacred privilege, one that should encourage humility and gratitude. God grants gifts of skill with languages. Anybody who's ever taken Hebrew or Greek knows it is not easy. A facility in thinking and speaking of the things of God, of the ability to make plain the way of salvation to others. And he further gives the preparation of teachers in seminaries to equip many for the vocation of preaching and gifts of charity in supporting those seminaries and the students who are in attendance there. And then what of us who regularly attend such preaching? Every time we come and have the word preached to us, we are brought near to God himself by his very word, the words of life. And this is a great gift and one that I'm afraid that we often take for granted, especially in a privileged society where the word of God is so readily available and it is not withheld from us. And not everyone has been so privileged. We have this, it's not of ourselves, and we should treasure it. For faith, the faith in Christ that saves us, the faith that comes by grace, comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. But how can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can the preacher preach unless he is sent? As it is written by the prophet Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Let's pray.
What then shall we say in response to this? If you, our Father, are for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors through you, Father, who have loved us. For we are convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from your love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.